You know what Freud says about human emotions? Years ago, and this is a paraphrase, but he likened human beings to like potbelly stoves and to our feelings as the smoke. And so you can, if you have a potbelly stove, you can shove as much crap down that flue. You can put paper. You could be like, I'm going to stop the smoke from coming out of this flue. And my question is, does the smoke go away? Of course not. That awesome little snippet was from Terry Cole, who is my guest today on the show. Terry is a licensed psychotherapist and has been doing this work for a good while now. She's also a global leading expert in mindfulness, meditation, relationships, and well-being. For more than two decades, Terry has been working with some of the world's most well-known personalities, from international pop stars to Fortune 500 CEOs. Check out her website. You will see some epic reviews there from people you might likely recognize. She empowers over 100,000 women weekly through her platform, online community, and popular podcast, The Terry Cole Show. It's a good one. I've been listening. Today, what are we talking about? Oh my gosh, what are we not talking about? I could have talked to Terry for hours. We joke about it. There's not many times that I go off script. By that, I mean, just forget to ask my standard questions. We ran out of time and I didn't get to those typical ones I ask. So that's how you know that this conversation is full of juicy stuff. We're talking about what real love is and what it is not. I ask so many questions around codependency. So if that's a topic that interests you, tune in. We talk about overfunctioning, the importance of self-awareness, how you may be numbing yourself out, and how so many women feel responsible for the feelings of others, but it's not helping us. This is a beautiful mix of Terry's personal story, and I felt like I really got to know her, as well as insights that you can apply and that I hope get you thinking a little bit more deeply about your own life and experience. So stay tuned to listen to Terry Cole. Welcome to Here to Thrive. I'm your host, Kate Snowwise. This is a podcast for people who are ready to step up and live a happier life. It's for those of us who are dedicated to understanding ourselves and getting the best that we can out of this thing called life. It's a mix of psychology and modern spiritual thought, always with a focus on practical advice so that you can take it back and apply it to your own life. I don't believe we're here to merely survive. I truly believe we're here to thrive. So let's get going. Terry, thank you so much for coming on Here to Thrive. You've been on my radar for quite some time, so it's great to finally connect. I'm super excited. You, to me, are the real love queen. Can we talk about what real love means to you? Oh, there's so many different meanings, but for me, it really is about mutuality, right? Mutual respect, cooperation, inter dependence as opposed to codependence or extreme independence, right? I like to describe my own relationship with my husband of 22 years, how it feels to me is being totally free and securely tethered at the same time. Oh, that is so powerful. Totally free, 
but tethered at the same time. Can we talk a little bit more about codependency? Because I feel like it is a word that is out there that a lot of people probably think they have a little bit of an understanding of, but may not be really clear. What does a codependent relationship look like in your mind? Well, codependency is basically when you feel overly responsible for the feeling state, the choices, and the outcomes of other people. So it doesn't necessarily need to go both ways in a relationship. One member of a relationship can be codependent. Yes. And usually, especially in addictive systems, that's usually how it is. You have the the lead, you know, enabler is also the head codependent. And then the person in the center of that organization is the addict. Listen, they're codependent too, don't get me wrong, but I'm talking about in a different way. They're they're like infantilized by the relationship, right? So they feel like they can't do anything because they've got this person being like, oh, I'll call your boss and lie for you. I'll bail you out of jail. I'll I'll do X, Y, and Z for you. And a lot of times, think about it this way. If you are behaving codependently in a relationship, you are doing things for people who can and should be doing them for themselves. This is such deep. I feel like we've just launched in and it's already so <laughs> deep. And my little mind is tick, 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 because there's so many thoughts just busting around in my brain. Mm-hmm. How do people recognize when they're in a codependent relationship? The codependency, right? It was popularized really in the 70s and 80s. And there was a book called Codependent No More written by Melody Beatty, which is still a great resource. Amazing. But a lot of Melody's work has to do with being codependently attached to someone with an addiction issue, whether it's someone who's deading, sex addiction, workaholism, alcoholism, drugs, right? So I never personally identified with codependency, even though I was definitely codependent, because I thought, well, I'm not involved with an addict. That's not me. And then I realized once I opened my therapy practice 20 something years ago, I started seeing like the things that I struggled with, all these other women struggled with too, but they were more like me, high functioning, had major careers, like had it together. A woman who is very strong doesn't necessarily, they're like codependent. What? I do everything for everyone. What are you talking about? Nobody's doing crap for me. Like I'm not codependent. But that doesn't mean you're not codependent. So I I coined a phrase called high-functioning codependency because that was something that the women in my crew and people who are identified with my experience would be able to recognize, like, wait, high-functioning? Yes, that's definitely me. So what is that? How is that different than other codependency? So it has a lot to do with over-functioning. And when you are a very high-functioning woman, human, I could say, but my I'm, I'm an expert at female empowerment. So I talk more about women. You could go so far doing so much for so long until something pretty, for me, I got diagnosed with cancer. So like I, ha- I was forced to get off that over-functioning, upwardly mobile. I was in the entertainment business. I was negotiating contracts for supermodels and celebrities for a bunch of years And finally, because, you know, the universe will like tap you on the shoulder being like, hey, this is definitely not the direction you should be going in. Hey, you might want to, you know, pick your head up. 
instead of swimming upstream and look around you because you'd see this business is not for you. But since I, I kept ignoring any of the signs, the universe, I guess, just decided it would throw me down the stairs with a cancer diagnosis. And yeah, that is definitely a wake-up call. But what, what I found, and I'm, I'm physically fine now. I mean, that was 20 years ago, which is really when I was changing careers. I'd already kind of gotten the memo, but apparently it took too long to get the memo. So high-functioning codependency for everyone listening is like you are super capable. And you're so capable that people are like, oh, well, she's always fine. She's got it. She's handling it. She's got it together. But what people don't see is that when you feel overly responsible for the feeling states, the choices, especially bad choices and outcomes of other people, and it doesn't have to just be like your primary important people. It isn't just the VIPs in your life. I mean, I felt this way about acquaintances. I felt this way about my hair colorist. I felt like I felt responsible. It was crazy how responsible I felt for so many people and how much bandwidth that takes up in your internal experience. Oh my, I just, I feel like I can hear so many women out there going, oh, <laughs> this might be a light bulb moment for me. Mm -hmm. When it comes to over-functioning, how many women are walking around doing this until they just burn out? Like you said, for you, it was a cancer diagnosis. Even though the universe had probably been tapping you on the shoulder for a little while before that, is it typically women just go, go, go in this kind of codependent relationship of giving too much to life until mm -hmm. they are kind of halted in their tracks? Yes, what I see is the burnout comes in the way of, because we'll never give up, right? So part of it is that we're just work horses. We're just, we'll just keep friggin' going. And so usually it's a physical breakdown that will happen. I see a lot of autoimmune disorders. I see depression. I also see women at this, this high level functioning, numbing feelings with what I call shadow addictions. And why do I call them shadow addictions? Well, because even though you you are dependent on those two big girl glasses of wine a night or three, let's say, you would never miss a day of work because of it. So part of why it's difficult to, to point a finger at this type of, it's very much like high functioning alcoholism. My father was a high functioning alcoholic. And it's really hard to point a finger at that because it's someone who never missed a day of work and has high powered job in 35 years, retired at 52, like it, it's still negatively impacting your life because he was definitely an alcoholic, but he was so high functioning that you didn't have the normal ways that you would be stopped, right? You would get a DUI, you would lose everything. You would, you know what I mean? Lose your home. You would, whatever that doesn't happen. So what I find with the women in my crew, I don't, I don't find them being super high functioning alcoholics necessarily, but they're so high functioning that the ways that they are numbing their exhaustion and their lack of satisfaction, these are women who have the lives that everyone wants. They're like, wait, you have this amazing career, you're making lots of money, and a lot of them are married and kind of like, uh, hey man, is this all there is? Because I thought this was going to be different. I thought it was going to feel differently. And it's not about their husband or their wife. It's about themselves. It's about their relationship 
to themselves. It's about never slowing down long enough to be like, oh, hey, am I doing what I want to do in life? Am I speaking authentically to the people that I love? Am I letting people actually know who I am? Or am I just plowing through each day, getting through to the next with the never-ending to-do list that literally never gets done? And sooner or later, something happens. So autoimmune disorder, back to the burnout stuff, there's that. But also, you can make decisions where, you know, a shadow addiction can can become a full-blown addiction if you don't pivot if you don't stop and you don't have to have what happened to me happen to you, right? Like you can learn from my experience. You don't need to get cancer to be like, hey, maybe it would be cool if I did an assessment right now or took an inventory of how I'm actually feeling. How satisfied am I in my life? Talking about relationships, the satisfaction oh my gosh, how many women are feeling that and how this can negatively impact our lives. How can women start to back away from those, what I would imagine are very deeply ingrained habits? No, it's all awareness. You know, I've created, because I've been teaching this for a bunch of years and I try to create, I try to teach it in a way that it's really accessible, even if the theoretical stuff is kind of heady and confusing, like there is a way that I can take that and bring it into something so that even busy women, because that is my demographic, right? It can't be like, well, you need to go to India for four months because nobody would do it. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I'm a I'm a working mom and I'm like yeah. I do chuckle at those wonderful retreats that I just fantasize about and I'm like, what so I'm just supposed to drop my life? <laughs> right. You're like, hello, I've got people counting on me. I can't. So I've I've created the five pillars of transformation. And so everything I teach is somehow we do it always in this order. And when clients are like, Well, I'm not sure, I'm like, Okay, well, you know. So I'll go through them quickly. And we don't even need to expand on them because they're pretty much self-explanatory. So self-awareness is the first pillar. So you must be aware that you're unsatisfied. You must slow down long enough, stop numbing long enough to be like, okay, I'm not really feeling lit up about my life. Okay. Okay, good. So self-awareness, that's the first step. Self-knowledge. Now this is where we dive in. I do a lot of inventory taking with people. I do a lot of what I call your downloaded blueprints. So, you know, we relate to the world when it comes to everything, love, boundaries, money, health, wellness, joy. We have these downloaded blueprints from the families that we grew up in, from the cultures that we come from, from the countries that we were born in. And it's a really important exercise to take that unconscious material and bring it into the main part of the house. Because I'll give you a quick example. In the way that I was raised, my parents didn't have a terrible marriage, but they didn't have the best one that I, you know, no fighting or anything, very waspy because you wouldn't fight because that would be very gauche. But, you know, that's, <laughs> but nobody was really that happy. Eventually, my mother had an affair with her boss at the IGA where she was a cashier. And my, you know, my, and my parents got divorced. Now, the whole time I got the feeling that my mother kind of thought that my mother was afraid of my father. So me and my three older sisters were also afraid of him. He was very quiet, not violent, never raised his voice, like in my whole entire life, probably said about 50 words to me before they got divorced when I was 13. So it wasn't around. It was pretty absent. But what I learned is that men are people to be managed. 
So as long as you figure out how to manage them, let them think that they're sort of controlling, but really women are the neck that, that wags the head wow. of the family. I was like, wow, that sucks. So once I got into therapy, realized why I never dreamt of having a wedding. Like, I just was like, yeah, no. The covert message I got from my mother was, make your own money, get an education, so that love can be a choice and not a need. Because my mother got knocked up her freshman year of college, dropped out of college, and this was, you know, in the 50s, right? So it was kind of miraculous that she she saved money, worked in a factory for two years to go to college. And she draw, had to drop out over winter break and got married in the back office of the Methodist Church in Schenectady, New York. Oh, doesn't that sound romantic? No, it does not. Hence why. <laughs> I was like, okay, I think I could live without that. Like, who who needs that kind of mediocrity? So for me, that was the downloaded blueprint around love. And it took me, you know, years to get into therapy and be like, but I want to believe that it can be different. And through that amazing therapist, what I learned was that that was just the way love was for my parents because of their lives. But it didn't mean that that's the way it had to be for me. So I needed to excavate. So bring up from the basement, right, or your unconscious mind, those limiting beliefs, look at them, right? And it required me to be willing to differentiate from my family system. All of us were kind of in agreement that, that men were kind of the inferior sex and kind of like jerks. So now I needed to be willing to be like, you know what? I don't think that's true. I'm going like, to review I, these beliefs that I have yeah. just been running on all these years. Exactly. And I'm going to change them. I'm hopeful that I can find a partner. So that's the second stage of really... So it was self self knowledge. So self knowledge, so self awareness, self knowledge, and then we move into self acceptance because so many of us are in such denial of what happened in our lives, what we learned, what we experienced, especially if there's abuse, addiction, chaos, dysfunctional family systems. You know, this week on my blog is all about the eight traits of dysfunctional families, which I who didn't have one, but you have to know and you have to be in acceptance. So that is the third pillar: is self acceptance. Because we can't build anything real unless you actually will accept and be where you are now. If we're in denial, we can't build it, right? I was reading just this morning, and I feel like it's all uh, universal alignment, reading about the importance of accepting where we are as a vital step and allowing us to move forward. And they tied it up with that idea of forgiveness and forgiveness not being necessarily having to forgive someone else, but but more of that concept of accepting that this is where you are and that's the only way you can pull yourself forward. Exactly. Because denial, there, there's no solid foundation because the truth is there. And I don't mean the truth like somebody knows it besides you, but I mean the actual you in your heart of hearts, in your unconscious mind, in your body, you know what you experienced. The child within you knows what you experienced. So when I have these high functioning CFOs, COOs who, of these women who are just such ballers out there in the world, the attitude a lot of times is like, come on, why do I have to talk about my alcoholic father? It sucked. It's fine. I'm fine. It sucked. I'm yeah. fine. It's fine. Like, yep. I don't even want to go there. Yep. And I was like, but you know who doesn't think it's fine? 
the five-year-old you, the 10-year-old you, the 15-year-old you, you know who wants your attention around this and finally want some friggin' justice for themselves is the little kid within you who just needs someone to be like, wow, I cannot imagine how hard that was for you. I'm so sorry that that was your experience. So those are the first three and the final two. I'm like, oh, I'm on tenterhooks over here, Terry. I'm so, I'm so mesmerized by this because it makes so much sense. Yeah, it does, which is why people, women especially need it. The fourth one is self-compassion. And I find that this is probably those CFOs, those COOs, those get it done women I was just talking about. It's like they've, they've learned how to come up within like the all boys club and self-compassion is just off the table. They're like, I'm over it. I'm like, uh, P.S. You're not. So let's go back. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you, <laughs> you are not over it because your will, you know, so much of the time and this it was the same in my life. How do I know this? Well, we teach what we most need to learn. I mean, that's it. So this was my life. I was plowing through. I was like, it's fucking fine. Like, it's just fine. I'm fine. It's all fine. I'm just going to create the life that I want. But the reality is the chickens will come home to roost regardless of what you do. So when we don't handle our childhood stuff that is unresolved, it will not just disappear into the ether because we would like it to. It manifests it, in different ways and shows up in your life and seeps out. Yes, it does. And also we're confused. We're like, I have no idea why I just burst into tears or why was I raging at that person? Oh my God, I don't know. You know what Freud says about human emotions? And then I'll get to the fifth pillar. Don't worry. <laughs> I swear. So Freud says about human, you know, years ago, and this is a paraphrase, but he likened human beings to like potbelly stoves and to our feelings as the smoke. And so you can, if you have a potbelly stove, you can shove as much crap down that flue. You can put paper. You could be like, I'm going to stop the smoke from coming out of this flue. And my question is, does the smoke go away? Of course not. It seeps out of every hole, every nook and cranny in that potbelly stove. So what happens is now your stuff is coming out in this indirect way because you've blocked the direct way by being a denial or by saying you're fine, but it's still got to go somewhere because you can't hold it all. And now you have reactions where you're like, that is the weirdest thing. Why the hell did I just bite that person's head off? I don't even know. Or why did I just burst into tears? Or why am I so filled with rage about these things that don't matter? And that's because you have got to process your feelings and honor your experiences if you're going to be healthy emotionally. Like that's just how it is. So there's no way to, there's no way around the middle of this process because if there was, I am very smart. I would have figured it out. <laughs> You're like, like, if it was working for me, I would have stuck to that track. <laughs> exactly. Trust me. And I, and I would sell it. I would be like, Hey, you don't have to do any of this work. Here's the magic bullet. It's the shortcut. <laughs> right. So let's get to pillar five. So anyway, we got pillar four, which is self-compassion. And there's all different ways that we can live that not just lip service it. And then the fifth is self-mastery, right? And that includes self-love and self-celebration, but self-mastery where you're not a victim to the things you don't understand about yourself. You have a really healthy 
and good relationship with you. I want to know more about your story, Terry. Mm -hmm. We've obviously tapped into a little bit of your childhood. What was it like before you started doing this work, right up to your cancer diagnosis, the the thing that kind of stopped you in your tracks? Can you tell us a little bit more about what Terry, who was just busting through, stuffing down and getting on with it, looked like? Sure. Well, there there was a couple of, I've had more than one, one sort of, important pivot in my life. So I, I got into therapy young when I was in college. I was always a happy kid. Like personality wise, I'm very similar to how I am now, like optimistic by nature. Just, I just, you know, someone who's pessimistic sees like obstacles. I see opportunities and I always have. So like, I'm, I'm definitely doing the work now that I'm meant to do in the world. I was a very, a super well-loved kid. I have three older sisters and they were born more close together. And so there was a little, little bit of a gap in then me. So instead of having a lot of sibling rivalry, they, they all just loved me. And my mother just loved me. She wasn't supposed to have a fourth daughter. She had three cesarean sections before me back in the day when they would like Whoa. literally cut you from Ugh. like your whole entire stomach open. So when she got pregnant, they were like, we don't think you're going to be able to carry this to term. And she was like, well, I guess we're going to find out because I'm not doing anything else about it. So I was born with all these sort of myths around how incredibly special, special. I am. And the important thing, too, for me was that from the er my earliest memories of my mother, even though my father was pretty absent, is that my mother, I would be two, like literally, like a little teeny tot, you know, and she would bend all the way down and be like, wait, so do you, you want to do that? Are you saying, yes, you like that? Oh, you don't like the way that dress feels? It's picky. You don't have to wear it. Like it's, and I'm making it sound like I was super overly indulged. I wasn't, I mean, it was a middle-class upbringing. We did not have tons of money, but my mother definitely cared about the way that I felt. And I always felt that that mattered, that, that what I thought mattered. Even when I was over-functioning my ass off, even when I was doing these other things and in not great relationships, I was never like in an abusive relationship, you know? So what did that look like? I got into entertainment. So as, as a talent agent in, in the growing up process though, there was a lot of drinking within my family system. And a lot of times people think drinking and chaos go together. Not so for m mine is more of like the more white collar, buttoned up kind of drinking where you don't talk about anything though. More about, it's more like the heavy silence. It, it's what wasn't said. It was what wasn't talked about when my sister started acting out, of course, because the family system was like losing its mind. And so somebody has got to be the scapegoat. So one of my sisters was a scapegoat, poor her. I was the golden child, poor me, because that sucks too, or the hero child, they call it, because that's also a shit ton of work. But you know, my, there would be no conversation. So some big blow up with one of my sisters didn't do the right thing. They got in trouble. We were all terrified of my father. But then the next morning it would be like poached or scrambled. You know, like my mother was always there breakfast, lunch, dinner, homemade treats and snacks. And, you know, like, so talking about anything, like nobody was allowed to be angry in the home that I grew up in, which is why when my sister started acting out, it was so, disruptive and terrifying because yeah. I'd spent my entire life where not one person ever raised their voice. So suddenly you're like, Oh my God, something terrible is going to happen. And then the one time I did hear my father raise his voice once 
the next day he moved out, my parents got divorced. Oh my gosh. So it is. That just does, it does confirm that if anyone raises their voice, something terrible is going to happen. Exactly. Anger is dangerous. Anger, something, something dies. Somebody gets angry, somebody, something dies. That's, that's, that was my connection right there. So by the time I was in college, I I thought the way that I was drinking was normal. And then I got into therapy because I was kind of feeling depressed for the first time in my life. Like school, we we had a bunch of like two weeks of no school because of a huge um, snowstorm in New York. And I was going to school in Long Island. And so as long as I was busy, I was always a cheerleader. I was always active. I was always going do, 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 of course, running away from how I was feeling. And drinking is another way that I ran away from the way that I was feeling or the feelings I didn't understand. Like I could handle only good feelings. And that was very much the way my family of origin was as well. Nobody had the language to problem solve. They really didn't. So there was more indirect communication, maybe an eye roll or a door slam or just totally ignoring the other person. But never would it be like, um, hey, I really need to talk to you. I'm, I have a problem with the way you handle, you know what I mean? Never, that would never happen. So it gave me zero skills. Right. I had no skills. So I actually had this therapist who after we were seeing I was seeing her about a year. She was like, "Um, hey, I've been meaning to talk to you about something. What you're describing is alcoholic behavior. And I was like, wait, Um, what? (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) Like who? I I literally actually said who? Because I thought she meant the people in my life. And she's like, you. I was like, wait a minute. So then every person, if you think I'm an alcoholic, everyone in my life is an alcoholic. And she said, well, that may be so, but I'm not treating everyone in your life. And if you don't seek help with the 12-step program, I'll have to terminate working with you. Wow. And you're all of a a young college-age girl at this point? I was like 20 20 or 21. And you can tell you're drinking is unhealthy. You need to seek help for this. Yeah. And I was like... Wow, I didn't even know she was allowed to break up with me, but holy crap, I don't want her to because she was a great therapist. And so I, I went to a 12-step program in Syosset, Long Island, in the basement of a church. Sounds so trite, but it's true. You know, it was the 80s, so you can imagine. I don't know if you can imagine what I look like, but I've got a lot of hair. I had a lot of hair then, red hair, long nails, tons of makeup, you know, stirrup pants, huge neon hoop earrings, like those who were raised during this time. You will understand what I'm saying. I thought I looked totally hot and definitely not like an alcoholic. That's what I told myself in the rear of the mirror before I went in. And so I go into this meeting and I'm sitting there like by the door so I can smoke my Parliament 100s um, considerately because everyone smoked that back then, obviously. And all of a sudden, this woman who looks a lot like me, similarly shellacked, I like to say, because she had a crap ton of makeup on as well, big hair. And she came over and she's like, oh, are you new? And I said, yeah, yeah. And she said, so what brings you? And I said, well, my therapist said I had to come to at least one meeting, one 12-step meeting, or she would break up with me because she thinks I'm an alcoholic. And she said, oh, well, I'm really glad you came. And I was like, well, thanks. And I said, well, what what brings you here? Because I don't know. I was trying to be polite. I didn't know the etiquette. And she said, um, I killed a six-year-old boy in a drunk driving accident. Oh, my Lord. Wow. So this is... I'm assuming this is one of the moments, Terry, where you are yep. stopped in your tracks and you think, whoa, life is trying to speak to me. Yeah. I was like, 
wow, I held it together till the end of that meeting, but then I went in the car, I was bawling my eyes out. I was crying so hard I couldn't even drive. I just sat in that parking lot and bawled my face off because oh. that could have been me so many times. And I really got it. So this was a huge pivot in my life where I got sober. I stopped drinking when I was 21 years old. So, yeah, and a, a big, bold step at 21 too, Terry. I know, but can you imagine if that re- – imagine – how grateful you'd be that you hadn't killed a six-year-old kid yeah. in a drunk driving accident. Oh, my, my. Yeah. Whew. So that is the first pivot. You stopped yeah. drinking at 21. What yeah. does life look like after that big, bold move? Where do you go from there? Well, lots of therapy, lots of self-help. Like I started really getting into – once I got sober, everything changed because I was now – Oh my God, you think I loved life when I was drinking? Wow. I was like, this is amazing. You're like, no longer numbed out. Right. And I, and I was also, not to mention, like in, I'm going to say in a month, I think I lost 25 pounds and found Whoa. my cheekbones. <laughs> like, I, I just changed. I was like, wait, what? That's all I needed to do was not drink 12,000 calories a night in beer? Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, then I moved to New York City from Long Island and just started really started my life but the the evolutionary path began in earnest then because now I was clear-minded all the time you know so reading the road less traveled and so many different right, books book. that were popular at the time oh and, my gosh I read a road less traveled when I was a teenager it's such a great book oh my god and the people of the lie M Scott Peck also wrote that book which was amazing so I just got on this self-help tip and keep in mind for the people listening because I'm older than you probably that you know this was like you know you went to a bookstore like we're not reading blogs there is nothing online there's literally no internet like I talk about this I mean I'm <laughs> I'm 36 but my you know my love of spirituality and wisdom and self-help started in my teen years where I would convince my mom to take me to the bookstore and all that was available to me was this tiny little shelf of a few books and I devoured my way through it because like you said there was no self-help industry online there was no internet (laughs) there really wasn't I mean I found Melody Beatty I was like oh my god yes like all these things so so at that point, my path had started in earnest. I had, I did a couple of, like a little bit of time in the garment center in New York City, and I hated it because it was racist and sexist. And then I ended up falling into a job at a talent agency. And keep in mind now, I'm in this job where everyone is doing drugs and drinking. I was going to say, everyone is numbed out on life, living kind of that hedonistic, yes. fast-paced, party hard, wake up tomorrow, just do it again kind of lifestyle. Yep. We were, and we represented all of these rock stars. And the first time I remember, like I worked at an agency that had a fucking steam room. What? <laughs> what is happening right now? And I went the wrong way one day. And I didn't even know who the hell we represented once I was first there. I literally turned by accident and walked down the steam and the steam room door opens and off, out walks Sting. Wow. In his sh- white sheer now because they're wet yoga pants they're like little genie pants and no shirt and I'm about to die I'm literally like excuse me I just turn around like ran into the bathroom locked the door and was like wait was that just like where am I right now (laughs) is this my job I thought I was gonna be be negotiating tv commercials what is Sting doing here and then of course you know I learned about the agency after that but yeah so it was quite a trip but I didn't have problems staying sober during that I was so lit up 
on life. I still am. That I was like, I don't want anything that's going to cloud this. I don't need to numb anything. But I think, you know, I, I just think about you. You reach that point of I don't need to numb out at 21. Whereas I think the majority of our population never reaches that point. We're numbing out on alcohol, on TV, on cell phones, on on everything, we are keeping yes, ourselves wait, but, numb. Well, let, let me not make it sound like I don't ever numb out. I <laughs> so, so, but be, like, being a human, I was so lit up by sobriety. So for a very long time, I wasn't looking to numb out. And then, of course, you know, the way addiction works is that even if you're not ingesting that substance, so my main thing was alcohol, you know, you still may struggle then with sugar or with food, or so I certainly have had, and it's continue. It is a continuous process of staying, staying sober from whatever it is that I would be likely to abuse, which could be anything, literally anything. That is the true story. So, I mean, it's a never ending process is all I'm saying. Sometimes it's Netflix, but I feel like, all right, could be worse, right? Could be worse. I hear that what you're saying is it's that never ending process of staying awake and engaged yes. with life that I think, yes. like you said, that's being human. Yes, indeed. It is being human. And sometimes we're tired and sometimes it's we do want to just I, I do want to just read People magazine for two hours and be grateful none of those people are my clients or be sad that some of them are, but whatever. Like <laughs> that's you know, that that's that's human as well. What we don't want is we don't want it to be to the extreme that it is negatively impacting the quality of our lives, our health, or our relationships. Negatively impacting the quality of our health, our lives, and relationships. Yes. Very important point. So and that's anything. That's yeah. any addiction. You can look at it because some people can drink every day. Literally, I know this to be true. Somebody in a 12-step program may tell you, no, that's not true. I know people. It does not. I mean, may, maybe their their physical body. I can't say it's not not good for that because it probably isn't. But everyone is so different. So you just got to worry about your own side of the street. You know what I mean? Mm. You need to you need to look at your own behaviors and say, is the amount that I smoke pot, drink, go to the gym, gamble, is that negatively impacting my health, my life, my relationships? And if the answer is yes, then you need to be willing to do the work to go deeper. Yes. And it doesn't mean you have to stop. Some people can do damage control and, you know, there's all these different ways. I find if you're really an addict, though, that that's just a way station. That's just a stop. If you have the mind that I have, trust me, if I could drink casually, I would. And I'd be drinking right now. Hence why I cannot. Anyway, yeah, yeah. My casual drink. yeah. <laughs> so you're at the talent agency you're at this is your 20s I assume mm -hmm. Terry you yeah. talked a little bit at the well you hinted at the start about how you've been married now for 22 years and you have this beautiful relationship where mm -hmm. you were tethered but free at the same time yes but you didn't always have relationships like that so moving oh, no. forward in your story I assume you're starting to date men and get in relationships at this point, but avoiding marriage as we put, as we, we got to earlier. Yes. I always, I was the serial monogamist. So I always had a boyfriend pretty much, um, until the, a little bit of time actually before my husband, luckily, but I had my college boyfriend for many years. I had, and then, and then I would have boyfriends, of course, 
which makes sense. I would pick guys who I thought were the opposite of my father. So my father was kind of cold and remote and unavailable. I would pick these warm, effervescent, effusive European dudes, right? I would travel all the time and I would always have a boyfriend who lived on another continent. Um, intimacy issues much? Yes, you do. <laughs> so I thought it was avoiding it. Like I was like, I'm dating someone who's nothing like my father. Oh, right. But he lives in Greece. So you might as well be dating your father because you're still left the same alone, lonely, frustrated. It's it's the same thing, Tara. You have not outsmarted it. You need more therapy. <laughs> so I finally got to this point with this brilliant therapist who helped me see this download, my downloaded love blueprint. And that happened towards my late twenties. And when I, once I knew that there was a chance in hell that I could actually have a healthy relationship, that it was possible for me to create what I wanted, I was fully obsessed. I was like, wow, what does it look like? What it looks like is stopped dating unevolved men. Stop I, dating unevolved men. Just stop it. So no more unexamined minds. Like I had made such a nice life for myself, amazing relationships, making lots of money, same friends in second grade, super close with my sisters and my mom. Like I had a great life. I did not need some idiot with a broken wing that I was going to fix. And then he was going to fly away. Like, I don't need it. Why am I doing this? It's okay. So I finally got to the place where I was like, you know what, Tara, if you never get married, if you never partner permanently in this life, it's okay. You are happy in your life. And yes, you would like that. But I liken it to this. You, me, we're all perfectly respectable. Let's say you're a piece of cake. I'm a piece of cake. Cake is delicious by itself. You don't need icing. Sometimes the right relationship is the icing on the cake. And that's lovely. And it is a little bit sweeter, true story. But you know what? Cake is completely respectable on its own without icing. And I got to that, that place in my own life where I was like, there's so much good you can do in the world. Don't waste your bandwidth worrying about pretending that you're demure or whatever it is that these guys want. I was too much for so many men. Can you be funny, pretty and successful? Well, you can, cause I am, but I couldn't be because it was like that, that it was too much if, if I was too much. And my friends would even say, not, not my close girlfriends from home, but like acquaintances who had set me up with someone would be like, you know, you might want to lie about your age. I was like, you might want to go fuck yourself because I'm not lying about my age. I don't, why are you shaming? Like keep your shame about your own age to yourself. I was 28 at the time. And the person they were trying to set me up with was 26 or something. I was like, I'm not lying about anything. 28, maybe you need to lie about your age. What a laugh, Terry. Oh, you just touched oh. on a point that I wanted to talk about with you, which was playing small mm. to keep the peace. And it's you, that's exactly what I hear you describing now is like softening your edges, becoming mm -hmm. something that you're not so that you can buy the love, I guess, or or get the love of, of someone else, but it's not true. Well, the thing is, how long can you do it for? Mm. Like my thought, I was like, I could pretend I'm demure for maybe a week. I don't know, but I'm not. It would, it would eventually 
come out, right? Wouldn't it, wouldn't who you really are eventually come out? And if it doesn't, how much bandwidth and energy are you, are you placing on stuffing that down? Yeah. And some, some people want that though. You know, honestly, some people really do. I'm not kidding. They're like, it's okay. Like I, I don't, I don't need to be known. I, I don't think that's true, but what if I never figured out the thing about what I learned from my mother? Right. I'd be in a relationship with someone that I secretly had contempt for, but I would think it was normal. And then I would have deep relationships with my girlfriends and other people. You know what I mean? You'd have a superficial relationship with your partner yeah. and yeah, look for that depth and intimacy with others. You exactly. also mentioned the broken wing idea. <laughs> Is that like a cornerstone of the people who have that tendency towards codependency? Like, I'm just going to look for the guy with the broken wing. And then once yep. he's fixed, <laughs> he can yep. fly off and I'll be sitting here in a pile of misery. Exactly. That's yes. And yes. People who tend towards over-functioning, over-giving, overdoing, problem solvers, you know, the auto-advice givers of the world, right? Where no, someone's not even asking you and you're like, oh, I have a great, I have a friend who works at that place. I'll, I'll, I'll connect you to, I'll, I'll, you know what I mean? Someone's asking, oh, oh yeah, we got this paint and it was over here and I'll, I'll, I'll hear, I'll, I'll text you that, oh my God, stop it. Just stop. Stop it. How it's do we so stop? Stop it, Terry. Well, you got to be aware of it. Yeah. And you have to also realize that it's, here's, here's the real thing. This is what we really care about. This over-functioning, over-giving, over-doing is actually a block to real intimacy. Codependency so much of the time is like confused. They're like, but I do, we, I do everything for them. And this, that does not equate to deep intimacy. Allowing the other person to be separate, allowing them to have their own feelings, holding space for them to figure their shit out on their own, asking them before you weigh in on something, do you want me to just hold space or, or, or are we brainstorming? Tell me, how can I best support you right now? Mm-hmm. Instead of assuming that you know. It's a very different way of of reacting with, uh, interacting with the world. Terry, I feel like before we wrap up the call, I, I, I will have people messaging me going, you never got to the bit where she got cancer. <laughs> oh, okay. We want to hear about that bit because otherwise they're going to get off the phone and be like, but what, ab- what about that what bit happened? in Terry's life? <laughs> All right. So cancer. I was just, I had already had, had a little bit of the wake up call because I was, I was running a talent agency in New York. So it was, um, the East Coast wing of a talent agency and basically representing supermodels. That's what I was doing. So we fast forward from Sting to like, (laughs) now we'll just add in a few years there to now you're running the talent agency. Love it. And, you know, fast forward to Naomi Gamble, literally. So this is, you know, life, which was hell, obviously. And (laughs) (laughs) all, all the crap that people think is like, great, because you have this fancy life. I didn't want any of that shit. I was like a homebody. It's a, you, you have know? a glossy life. So everyone looks at it like it's perfect. Yeah. Even my, my dad who was alive still then was like so proud because I was so successful. You know what I mean? But I was like, oh, hey man, but I'm not happy. And I remember telling him, I was like, um, I'm actually going to uh, quit my job and go to grad school. And he was like, what? He's Why? like, my daughter has lost her mind. <laughs> well, he's also like, I was the most successful of my siblings. So he was like, you're kidding me, right? <laughs> And I was like, no, I was like, I'm going to become a psychotherapist. 
And he was like, wait, you're getting your master's in social work? I was like, yeah. He's like, from where? I said, NYU. He was like, that's weird. (laughs) (laughs) You go do you. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, well, good thing I don't fucking need anything from you because I got my own money. Bye. Um, So you're running a talent agency in New York City, literally supermodels in that period. Yeah. And I realized, like, I don't want this life. I'm contributing to all of this, like, misogynistic bullshit that I don't want to be a part of by being in this business. I just felt like there's no way you can, like, absolve yourself. Like, you are part of the problem with women being of size zero minus two or whatever. So um, my former assistant, who, who of course became my best friend because I had the worst professional boundaries ever, um, <laughs> she was like, hey, want to go to grad school together? I was like, uh, yeah, okay. She's like, let's become therapists. I was like, all right. So because we were both into the self-help and all that stuff. And so we did. I applied to one grad school. In the process of this, as grad school is um, ending, I'm, I meet the man who would become my husband, Victor. And at the same time, a month after that, I find this huge like lump in my throat. So I'm like, this is literally directly after I meet Vic. Wow. My father drops dead of a heart attack. Not sick, just dies. Not even. I'm down in Florida at at his um, house helping his girlfriend and my sisters, you know, clean up everything. And I feel this huge thing. I call my mother and she's not a doctor, but she kind of thinks she is. So I was like, I have this lump in my throat, mom. What is it? And she said, oh, you know what? We have goiters and thyroid issues in the family. It's probably that. So I go get it checked out. Obviously, it's not that, but I think it's that. And then I end up having to get it removed because it was the size of a plum. But they don't tell me what it is, right? So I think it's fine. Hmm. It's just like a benign something and whatever. I don't even know the words. I just was like, if there was something to worry about, somebody would have told me. Yeah. I do the follow-up 10 days later and um, I go in and literally the guy says, oh, I haven't even looked at the pathology yet. I was like, oh, well, you might want to pretend you give a shit and (laughs) I guess we'll both be surprised. So how about you look at it now, idiot? And he looks at it and he's like, Okay, well, so it's malignant. And I was like, I was such a cancer virgin. I literally said, is that the good one? He was like, "Uh, no, I would not say it's the good one. But it's a low-grade cancer. You don't have to worry about it, this and this. So I was like, all right, dude, but either it's cancer or it's not cancer. And you just said it was cancer. So (laughs) you did. And did I mention that my husband, who had been alone raising kids for like 12 years because his wife died of cancer, I finally come into the picture. I'd never been married. He had three teenage sons who finally are like, oh, thank God someone's here to save us, basically. And now I come home and I have cancer. They're like, oh, of course she does. Because women die or leave. That's it. Nobody stays around. Like that's, it was just so loaded, not necessarily only because cancer is scary, because it is. But that whole situation is so Wow. Horrible. Yeah. Then I end up having a second bout of the cancer because, oh, it's a long story. Anyway, it was two different kinds of thyroid cancer. One very pretty, pretty, um, even though it was malignant, I want to say pretty benign. Like it, it, you, it's very contained and slow growing. The other one. Not so much. Not so much. Could have moved to lungs and bones. It was a whole thing. So all that happened within a year. Oh. So the world is just bringing you to your knees when you finally have the courage to make this bold move. Exactly. But I was so happy that I found Vic. There was a part of me that was like, none of, like, I found my person. Like, (sighs) I don't even care. 
Like, it'll be fine. I don't want to die because I don't want to do that to this poor guy who's had such a tough ride already. Yeah. Oh, so you are brought to your knees, but you found Vic. I want to wrap up there. I want to talk about where we started. You said real love is being tethered but free. Can you talk to us about having been married for 22 years, which is phenomenal, Mm. And having this sense of complete freedom, yet this partnership, how does that work? What does that look like, Terry? Well, it looks like what I really wanted, which is that someone who had their own show and that I would have my own show. And we would be super psyched to be in the front row. So my husband is a very well-known political artist. He gets embedded in war zones. Like he's won every award. He's been in every magazine you've ever heard of. Like he's a very accomplished artist. For the people like me who want to now go and Google stalk him, can you yes. tell her, can you tell us his name, Terry? Yes, it's Victor. Last name is Juhas, which is J-U-H-A-S like Sam, Z like zebra. Okay, I'm excited now to see his work. Oh, it's unbelievable. And and one of my one of our sons is also incredibly talented. Has already won an Emmy. His name oh. is Alexander Juhas. Anyway, moving on to what does it look like? I'm I'm really trying to stay. I mean, we could talk for like days, we could right? talk so. for we could talk for five hours straight, Terry. I, this has just not been long enough. <laughs> so, what does it look like? It for me, it looked like I wanted someone who was masterful and successful at something of their own, and that we mutually support each other. I wanted someone who was grown up. You know, Vic owned his own home. He had a retirement account. The first time he picked me up for a date, he went all the way to Lincoln Center to pick up the tickets so I wouldn't have to wait in the rain. He knew how to get tickets to the opera. Like, he was a grown-up. I wanted a man who, and and not because I needed to be taken care of. I like to describe it like Vic, at the right and perfect moments in our life, he treats me like a delicate flower, even though he knows I'm a warrior goddess. Oh, that perfect. I think it's exactly the same way as you mentioned at the start, you know, that tethered but free, that delicate flower who's a warrior goddess, that these things can coexist. And when they do, they're beautiful. And when you're with that right person, though, they get it. Like with Vic, he's very chivalrous. I don't expect him to be, I'm not super old fashioned like that, but I love that. He never wants me to shovel snow. He's like, it's freezing. Go inside, babe, make some tea. I'll meet you inside. Like, I like that he considers me in that way. Like it's, it's sweet, you know, and he doesn't have to, and he certainly doesn't work for me, but both of us do for the other, whoever, whoever is less capable in that moment, like the other person stands up for the relationship. We have an agreement that we cannot and will not crack up simultaneously. Yeah, one one. So one person is always carrying, carrying. How would you describe that? Carrying the load when you need to. I don't think that's quite the right well, way. It, it, we're standing up for the relationship. So, like, if I'm in a compromised state because I'm exhausted, I've been writing, I've been up all night, and I like snap at him and am not nice. Instead of him reacting and being like, don't do that to me. I don't deserve that. He'll be like, babe, you're, you're, what can I do? I made coffee. How can I, how can I support you right now? You seem tired. Do you know what I mean? Like he won't, he gets it. He knows it's not my best self. So instead of being offended by me in that moment, 
he stands up for my healthy self by being like, you're tired, hon. I get it. You know what I mean? It's funny you say this because I was just, I was almost preaching to my poor girlfriends the other day about (laughs) healthy relationships. And I said, one of the things that has changed my marriage the most is instead of meeting fire with fire. So like you said, instead of being snappy and then he snaps back, I have now made a very conscious shift and I choose to meet my husband always with compassion. Why is he reacting like that? What can I do for him? Where is he at right now that is causing that reaction in him? Because yep. the, this is not him or not, yep. not not him, but this is, there is something out of whack here. What can I do for that? And for me, it's just compassion is the best word I've come up with to talk about the shift in my own marriage from reaction to compassion. Uh, So good. And it's so important that you treat each other with kindness and that you're polite. Vic and I are polite to each other, like thank each other, whoever makes the bed every day. It's someone different, but whoever makes the bed later on, the other goes, Oh, thanks for making the bed, babe. Now, some people might think that's redundant and weird. And why do you do that? We do that because when the shit hits the fan, you now have accumulated this well of goodwill that creates so much flexibility when the going really gets tough. So to get this kind of real love, Terry, we need to move through those five stages ourselves. Is that yes. the, is that the foundation on which a beautiful life can grow? Yes, but it it really the way that I would say it is that self-love is the only path to any other healthy love. So so it's really about working on and understanding your relationship with yourself first, because if you hold yourself in low esteem and have a, an ongoing negative internal dialogue, the likelihood that you will find someone else to save you from that is, is not likely, right? Your self-regard creates the bar for all of the other relationships in your life. So it is valuable to know and fall in love with you because then you will find others who agree with your good self-esteem, with your holding yourself in high esteem as opposed to the other. Oh, get enjoy being that piece of cake without the frosting first. Exactly. Terry, if you could leave the listeners of Here to Thrive with one thought today for them to kind of marinate on or savor, what would it be? You are enough. You are enough right now. Stop being so mean to yourself. Stop worrying about 10 or 50 pounds. You are enough right now. Know yourself. Do the work do that inner dive. Take my Real Love Revolution course or my Boundary Bootcamp course because basically it's all based on these pillars. But you are enough and what you want is possible. I'm going to be having Terry back on the show for sure. I had so many more questions I wanted to ask her and I feel like this was only a snippet but so interesting. If you're interested in some of the topics that we spoke about today, codependency, love, all of that, then check out her podcast, The Terry Cole Show, where she'll talk about it a little bit more in depth. She also mentioned her two online courses. She has The Boundary Bootcamp and The Real Love Revolution. You can learn more at terrycole.com. 
She also has an epic freebie that she will give to you. Her Calm in the Storm meditation is on her website as well. Finally, go and find Terry online. She has a thriving, cliche, thriving YouTube channel full of tons of interesting stuff around narcissists and gaslighting and boundaries. If you search Terry Cole over there, you will find her too. Now a little quick note. First of all, if you enjoyed this episode, you can totally support Here to Thrive by leaving a rating and a review iTunes loves those, as do I, or telling one of your friends or someone else about the show. There is nothing like word of mouth. I know that the best podcasts I've ever found have come from personal recommendations, so it means so much to me when you share it with your friends. I also want to let you know that Here to Thrive is going to be getting a bit of a makeover, and it's not a little one. Like, It's a big color change and a very fresh look. So I want to prepare you for that so that next time you're listening, you're not shocked when it doesn't look the same. If you want a sneak peek, you can come and find it over on Facebook. Search Here to Thrive and there's a private group community for Here to Thrive listeners. Totally free. Go and have a look in there. The first place I shared the new cover. It's like the insiders group over there. And... You can also find it on Instagram. I don't talk much about the Here to Thrive podcast Instagram page. I really need to work on that. But you can find me on Instagram as well. It's one of my favorite hangouts, kate.snowwise. And I really want us to keep using the hashtag Here to Thrive so we can find each other. You guys are starting to get the hang of it. I'm getting excited. Hashtag Here to Thrive. Next episode, you've got me, just little me, talking about habits and keystone habits and the habits that may be informing or undermining your progress in life. So subscribe so you don't miss that episode on the next release. Until then, just keep thriving, beautiful people. Keep thriving.